what we realized is if you get very organized early in the process, early in the beginning of all this, it's going to make your life in the duration of the CI a lot easier. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today I'm very excited to have with me the Associate Vice President for Compliance at the North Broward Health System in Florida, and uh, Lucia Pisano-Urbina. And Lucia and I met at the most recent annual Compliance Institute and uh, shared her journey uh, that she has been on with uh, her present role and kind of mirrors my role that I've talked about at the podcast. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the operation of a compliance program under a corporate integrity agreement. But first, I want Lucia to introduce herself and talk a little bit about the North Broward Health System, what services it provides in the Southern uh, Florida area. Thanks, Bob. Um, So as you said, I'm the Associate Vice President uh, for Compliance. I run the day-to-day operations here in the Corporate um, Compliance and Ethics Department. Anything related to compliance disclosures, our audits, contractual compliance training, I have a hand in it. A little bit about Broward Health. We are one of the 10 largest safety net hospitals in the United States. Uh, It's a public hospital system, and we cover the residents. We serve the residents of the northern two-thirds of uh, Broward County, and our system includes four hospitals, two trauma centers, uh, one urgent care, several uh, outpatient ambulatory centers, and physician offices. We have over 30 locations throughout the district. And you said something that's interesting that I don't know if a lot of listeners know about, and that, that is the nature of the system. It's a public safety net hospital system, and that means it's a taxing authority, and so therefore mm-hmm. it is a public public entity, and that means at your board meetings, and this is going to be a little bit of the nuance we're going to talk about, at your board meetings where you're talking about compliance or somebody's talking about compliance or legal issues, there is the press, and there is mm-hmm. the public public is present. And so that's a unique nature of your health system, correct? Yes. All the meetings are publicly noticed. Um, Our board of commissioners, they're all appointed by um, our governor. Um, And and yeah, they're all public. Anyone can show up. Everything is under 
the sunshine. Yeah, exactly. Well, mm -hmm. in, in previous episodes, I've talked a little bit about my journey, my in-house experience that I had with the hospital system here in South Bend. Uh, you can stumble into compliance infractions uh, with your physician compensation arrangements, and that occurred here in South Bend, where in previous episodes, I indicated that we had two doctors that went to jail. One went to jail for two years. The other doctor went to jail for three years. I went in-house and served as the compliance integrity officer for the hospital system for seven years. Five years of that was under a corporate integrity agreement, and most recently, I was the compliance expert to the Board of Commissioners at Halifax Health, also a safety net hospital in Florida. Uh, so I know the sunshine real well, uh, both externally as well as at board meetings <laughs> uh, in, this, in the state of Florida. And uh, in that role, that was also a physician financial arrangement that caused Halifax uh, to sign a five-year corporate integrity agreement. And we're not going to get into the specifics with respect to North Broward and those uh, the reasons that caused North Broward to sign a corporate integrity agreement. Uh, you can find that publicly, but for the purposes of this podcast, I want to focus in on what is life like under a corporate integrity agreement, but more specifically is for those of you who are not under a corporate integrity agreement is what are some of the learnings that you can take away uh, about the operation of an organization under a corporate integrity agreement and apply to your compliance program and to comply not only with the vast array of legal and compliance issues, but also the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, False Claims Act, and the like. So generally, uh, tell me about your life un under a corporate integrity agreement. If you have like a, a day in the life and maybe an unusual day in the life under a corporate integrity agreement. You know, when we first got into the CIA, I remember it seemed like it was a lot, right? And it was, it was very daunting. And, and I think what we realized is if you get early, like very organized early in the process, early in the beginning of all this, it's going to make your life in the duration of the CIA a lot easier. Um, CIAs involve so many departments. So you have to get help from other departments, your contracts, uh, human resources, Department of Learning, and several others. I mean, the biggest thing I thought was getting to know the CIA, right? You really have to get to know it. Um, I actually created this book, right, which is the CIA all the statutes and all other laws that are referenced throughout it. And I took this with me to every meeting. You know, a day in the CIA in the life, um, we'd go to meetings talking about, let's say, can we do this with certain referral source arrangements or how would we do the tracking remuneration? I mean, this was all, we would follow this. This was kind of like our little Bible uh, of sorts, right? So that's, you know, maybe one day. Later on in our CIA, we created subcommittees from our compliance committee. So one of the, the requirements of the CIA, and I think this is across the board with all CIA, is you have to create a compliance committee, which includes several leaders throughout the organization. So around year three, we started creating subcommittees of that committee, right? And one of them was the CIA report, the CIA committee, right? And we basically went through this whole document, right? And line by line, we had to see what was the issue, like what was the item, what we needed to do if a task was required, and who was going to be responsible for doing that. And then we tracked it, right? So that was kind of our day to day, making sure we were doing everything, you know, having timelines for what was needed, and really just being organized. 
And, and a lot of it is also just trying to categorize your contracts I and mean, which contracts were applicable to the CIA. And I'm, I've, I've read the North Broward Corporate Integrity Agreement, and it also indicates that you had to have contractual provisions in certain covered transactions. Was that a challenge for your organization? So in the beginning, um, that was actually my main role. That's why I came over to, to Broward Health. We evaluated all arrangements. So another employee and myself, we would look at all of the arrangements, determined if it met the definition of a referral source arrangement, or like it's called here, focus arrangement and covered person. And then we would have to let the contracts department know, hey, you need to add this language into the agreement. This needs to be done. We have to follow these steps. So yeah, there were there were challenges with that. But once we got in the rhythm of it, it was easy. Everybody understood. We trained people and everybody knew why. And if there were ever questions, we were always there to help out, you know, and, and make sure that this is the reason why this is what we have to do. Let's get it done. And then yeah. we check always at the back end too, that everything was done. Yeah. And did you ever have any lawyers representing the physicians or referral sources say, well, why is this language in the contract and have to explain that or is it pretty much understood? It was understood. Physicians, I, we didn't really have an issue um, with physicians. Um, maybe there were a couple non-physician. It was more like uh, certain contractors that maybe they're like, why are you adding this language? We, as soon as we'd explain it to them, they're like, okay, we got it. Yeah. And, and they think no issues. that's probably one of the major differences uh, operating under a CIA versus outside of a CIA, because that contractual language is basically to recognize that a corporate integrity agreement exists, that all of the terms and conditions uh, between the parties are going to be consistent with all applicable federal and state laws and things like that, uh, which for the most part is understood in contracts. But it uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a mandated requirements by the Office of the Inspector General under a, a corporate integrity agreement. One other area that I found interesting, not only with my personal experience, but also with Halifax, is education and just the tracking and the monitoring and the designation of education. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah, so for those, so one of the requirements for the physicians, we had to get them trained, right? So we would have to add, obviously, the language in the agreement. And then also, we'd have to track them, right, that they got the specific training for the physicians, um, you know, every year. Uh, and that was done we would have the medical, sorry, credentialing office did a lot of that. And then they would just tell us, hey, it was all done or whatnot. Some of the other types of, you know, entities that we got into contracts with that were referral source, that was a whole other thing that we would have to track. That was a little more difficult, but we'd get the training, we'd put the, we'd get the, the proof and put it into our contracting system. That way it's all there in one place. Another part of the, one of the other things that we had to do is in the language, it would say that we would give you all our policies and procedures related to Stark and anti-kickback. So we would have to send another email or you know, at that time we were doing emails with all the policies and procedures, make sure they were updated. We'd have to update it every so often to make sure that they were the correct, they were the most effective ones. And then we'd have to get that acknowledgement that they received it, they, they reviewed it and everything and put it into the contracting system as well. Yeah. And education is just a, a good, and it's also one of the elements of an effective compliance program. But what is harder and more difficult under a corporate integrity agreement is the tracking of it. And if you don't receive 100% of the applicable trainees, what do you do? 
Because I know uh, when I was in-house and also with Halifax, especially with W-2 employees, we ended up terminating W-2 employees who did not participate. But you have 1099 independent contractors, you have independent members of your medical staff, uh, which is always challenging. I'm sure you experienced that. Yes. With with our contracts and like I had, I mentioned briefly before, we would always check always at the end. So related to contracts, right? If it was a referral source arrangement or, or at the end of the, the the contracting process, we would have someone check were the policies provided? Was the training provided? Did they provide acknowledgement that they did the training? Was it uploaded into the contracting system? So that was another check we did for employees, for our employed physicians. All that was tracked, tracked through a system. And if they didn't do it, they were consequences so it was it was definitely hard to track but we did it and we got through it (laughs) exactly um when you sign a corporate integrity agreement obviously it's an agreement with uh with the office of the inspector general and the office of the inspector general then assigns an oig monitor that is then monitoring your program can you talk to me Mm -hmm. a little bit about your interactions. And this is for the listeners who are not under a CIA. Obviously, this is something you do not have to do. But think of the OIG monitor somewhat like your board. Uh, So this is like somebody that you're reporting to about the effectiveness of your compliance program, except now you're you're doing it with a government agent. Uh, So talk to me a little bit about your interactions with your OIG monitor. For me, they were always positive. I think that our OIG monitor really wanted us to succeed. She was really a resource for us. So if we ever had a question or there was an issue, we ensured to always keep her, you know, in the loop of everything, have constant communication with her. And she always helped us out, you know, if whatever we needed. So I would say they were positive. And and I guess my biggest recommendation is always keep constant communication with that person, you know, with your OIG monitor. It's very important. And they appreciate it too, you know, if if you keep that constant communication with them. Just think of them as your boss, essentially, right? Like that's the way I kind of viewed it, right? She's our boss for the CIA. So I'm always going to let her know of what's going on. Yes. And then annually, obviously under a CIA, you have to file the annual report, and yes. so that obviously was a, a huge, I'm assuming, huge time to try to assemble all the appropriate documents to document the effectiveness and the adherence to the terms of the CIA, right? Oh, yes. I would say that's probably, the annual report was probably the hardest part in all of the the, the CIA um, requirements. It took the longest to do these these annual reports were over a thousand pages each one so with all the exhibits all the documents the annual report itself right we were well over a thousand pages but if i could advise if i could give you know any recommendations to someone out there create an annual report subcommittee from your compliance committee that's something we did and it kept us organized Right. So instead of starting your annual report process at the end of the reporting period, start it three months before. Right. And start, you know, go line by line. Right. Most of these CIAs are the same. Like you need to provide all the the dates that the compliance officer reported to the board, get the the certification from the board, Um, all the policies and procedures that were changed, your training plan. There's a ton of stuff. Right. And it's all pretty much the same. If you just line it up, put due dates, who's going to help you get it? And then 
you know, start putting your annual report together. This subcommittee can help you review all that stuff. They keep us accountable, right, to make sure that we get everything done on time. But they also helped us to make sure that everything made sense. They were, we did several table reads, right, of the report um, with exhibits, and then I would give them updates. I was actually the chair of that subcommittee. And then once we had like a final, final draft, right, almost ready to send to the monitor, we sent it to the entire compliance committee, and they had to review and, and, and approve it and with all the exhibits and everything. And it, it really helped because everybody's invested in it. You know, the whole organization was invested in getting this done, getting it done accurately, you know, and, and making sure that it really represented what we were doing. Yes. And for those who are living under a CIA, you file the annual report and sometimes you hear crickets uh, for a while from your OIG monitor. And typically like the board members, I know, asked me, both in Halifax and when I was doing it, I uh, said, well, what response did you get? And I said, you know, nothing yet, but nothing is good news. Obviously, if mm-hmm. there's a problem, then you would hear hear about it. Uh, but it's a requirement, but it's not necessarily a requirement of the OIG to get back to you and to, I guess, itemize, you know, their thoughts and feelings. It's if there's a violation, you'll hear. Uh, but for the most part, uh, they receive it. They'll probably give you uh, generally, I'm not sure about the North Broward case, but they'll generally give you some impression that it was complete and they have no further questions, but you're not going to get a detailed analysis from the OIG, correct? We always got letters from her and and she would always ask us sometimes for follow-up depending on the item. Mm -hmm. So we would have to follow up and then respond within a certain time for, for, in my experience, we would get responses on the annual report anywhere between two, maybe in four months, but we always got a letter. um, And there were certain items that they requested for us to give a little more information. So we would always do that quickly, get that turned around, show the proof exhibits and, and whatnot. So yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times when I'm dealing with my clients, there's this uh, fear of entering into a corporate integrity agreement because a lot of times the organizations will say, well, we want to try to avoid it. And yes, I, I think that there's, it's logical to try to avoid a corporate integrity agreement if you don't have to. However, it's not the death knell of compliance or the organization to live and operate under a corporate integrity agreement, because for the most part, except for your interactions with the OIG monitor, uh, for the most part, it is the best practices that you're trying to implement under the corporate integrity agreement. So now that your life has transitioned uh, outside of a CIA, uh, tell me a little bit about what is your job like now outside of the CIA versus uh, underneath a CIA? You know, I'll be honest, when we first got out of it, it was kind of weird and like a bit of a transition for me personally, because <laughs> ever since I started at Broward Health, we were under a CIA. I, I started a month and a half after we entered into it. So mm. that's been my whole life, you know, at that up to that point, right here at Broward Health. And I was so involved in it. But really, not much has changed for us. You know, we're still doing the same things. And I know this is not typically a requirement. It wasn't a requirement for us under our CIA. And I don't know if it's become a requirement now, but to do a CIA transition plan, we did that. And um, we actually gave it to the OIG, to our OIG monitor for review. Um, and basically, we just came up with a plan. We went through the whole CIA. What are we going to keep? What are we not going to keep? And and when I say not going to keep, it's not that we're not still doing the things. It's industry practice, right? Like, for example, 
you know, our referral source arrangements, we're still going to evaluate them the same way we said that we were going to do it from the beginning. And we're going to continue doing our annual audits of referral source arrangements. We do a sample, we check everything. But for policies, right, the, the CIA required for you to review your policies every year. So what we're doing now is reviewing every two years, right, unless there's some sort of regulatory update that requires us to change, you know, a certain policy. But we're still doing a lot of the same things, you know, reviewing our policies just now within two years, sending it out to all affected persons. And, and, and following a lot of the things, we're still doing a training plan every year. You know, those things we're still keeping, but there's just a, a few variations, I guess, to to what the, the CIA um, originally had. Yeah, and I think that that's a, a, a great learning point is to try to continue the structure and the processes that were put in place under the CIA, but also post-CIA trying to keep those because those are indeed best practices. Uh, mm-hmm. So sometimes when I'm working with with clients that have a major issue, I try to say, well, let's start operating the compliance program as if we were under a CIA because that could help us in our posture with respect to settlement of whatever issue. Uh, so this way you get the organization, I guess, warmed up, so to speak, <laughs> uh, for yeah. the terms and conditions of a CIA. The transition plan, we track it too. So that's something mm-hmm. that I'm responsible for. At one of our subcommittees, I report like where we're at, what we've done and all that. So it's another thing to, to keep into keep in mind too. We also do annual reports. My boss, the chief compliance officer, he completes an annual report and submits it to the compliance committee, which we here at Broward Health, we call it the executive compliance group. So I may switch back and forth between the names, but but yeah, he he reports the, he does an annual report for them every year. And how is that connected with your board? Is that a committee of the board or is that administrative committee? It's administrative. Okay. It's administrative. And then he also reports to the board as well. Gotcha. I mean, that's what I wanted to, to, to find out. So what would be your advice to compliance officers based upon your experience, both inside and also outside of a CIA? One of my previous bosses, he would always ask me when I brought up an issue and I said, oh, it was completed. He would say, how do you know? How do you know is such an important question to ask. So during the CIA, you know, when you're doing your annual reports, you can't just say you did the training right? You have to show the proof. You have to have in your own records, like, hey, we did all the training for the medical staff. It was completed on this date. All of them completed it. Uh, These didn't, and they're on, you know, let's say administrative uh, leave or something. Was Was a description of all the changes to your policies and procedures disseminated to all the affected covered persons? Yes, here's the proof. Here are the people that received it. You know, you need to have the proof, right? You need to know the how do you know, essentially. The, the, you have to have the answers to the how do you know. And that's as it relates to the CIA. Outside of the CIA, when we do our audits, our compliance audits, there's sometimes some opportunities that we find, uh, maybe if it's training or going back to policy, updating a policy to make sure that we're in line with you know whatever the audit found. And you need to make sure that it was done, right? You can't just say something in an audit right? And not have it completed. So you got to have that answer to, to, to that it was completed, right? Yep. And have proof of it in your records. So yep. I actually have a compliance officer client and the outside of her door, she has a placard that says, trust, but verify. And so it's like we, we can receive information from a department by way of example, and they can tell you that yes, everything has been done. 
and we want to want to agree and also believe them. But as you indicated, that we need to have the documentation to verify that the statement that they're making is accurate. So that way, if we have to show a third party, we don't just say, well, Jane told me everything was fine and therefore I relied on Jane. Well, not only did Jane tell us everything was fine, but here's the documented proof that everything was implemented and a third party can, can validate that it was implemented. So very good point. Well, we've come to that point in the, this episode for the Captain Integrity Three Punch Points, and I've asked uh, Lucia to come up with the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for the episode today. So, Lucia, what are our three Captain Integrity Punch Points? So, my first one is to create a CIA annual report subcommittee. Like I mentioned, it was so helpful when we were writing the report, reviewing the report, get those key leaders from your compliance committee and and start working on the report early. My second one is always have a plan of correction for any item you need to be at that you need addressed. Um, Your IRO and your OIG monitor may have items that you need to address in your reports. Track it, make sure it's complete. And the last one is be organized. It seems like such a small thing, but it's so important in so many ways. So just get organized from the beginning and it's going to be smooth sailing after. Exactly. Well, this has been great, Lucia. And I think for our listeners that you can actually feel that operating under a corporate integrity agreement is not as bad as what a lot of people would say. You need to to talk with somebody like Lucia or myself who's actually operated under a corporate integrity agreement. It really is a forceful way to implement the elements of an effective compliance program. You, like uh, Lucia mentioned, you have your boss, uh, the OIG monitor, who's there to make sure that everything is done uh, in that fashion. But uh, the board connection is also good to make sure the certification process that Lucia talked about is making sure that uh, your board members certify, but they only certify once they have knowledge that everything has been implemented consistent with the terms. And that's the reason why boards rely on administrative people to uh, to do that. So thank you so much, for, uh, Lucia, for this conversation. And I wish you the best of luck in your continued role at North Broward Health System. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.